Hi, I'm Lorna Meehan, and welcome to Rebel Heroines, a podcast celebrating the rebel heroines of the Greek myths through original audio drama, poetry, book and theatre reviews, and interviews with fellow fans and creatives. In this podcast, the stereotypical and somewhat toxic heroes of the ancient world take a step back as we delve into the stories of the women who shaped their destinies. If you like your Greek myths seen through a feminist lens, enjoy creative adaptations of the classics such as the novels of Natalie Haynes and Madeline Miller, and agree that Hollywood hasn't made a decent movie set in antiquity since the original Clash of the Titans, this is the podcast for you. Welcome to Rebel Heroines, the podcast celebrating the rebel heroines of the Greek myths and the women who write about them through original audio drama, poetry, book and theatre reviews and interviews with authors and fellow fans. In this podcast, the stereotypical toxic heroes of the ancient world take a step back as we delve into the stories of the women who shaped their destinies and champion the female authors bringing these nuanced women to life. I've just started reading Herc by Foranisha Rogerson, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. The premise is each chapter charting Hercules' origins and adventures roughly chronologically is told by different people who knew him, his family, his lovers, his companions... And it really works because you've seen Hercules through the eyes of those who knew him firsthand, but also because he's only ever being observed by others and you don't get his inner voice. We feel both this intimacy and this strange alienation. We get tantalisingly close to this enigmatic figure, but no closer to knowing him deeply because he's too wrapped up in his mythology, in his superstardom to untangle him. And there's this sense that he can't untangle himself from his own mythology either, because it's done in this kind of contemporary confessional monologue style, very flippant and funny. Some of the voices blur together a little sometimes, but there's particular characters who really stand out. His first wife, Megara's account of birthing his nine children, then witnessing their brutal murders at his hands, and this sense that we get after that he's welcomed wherever he goes, not just because of his heroic exploits, but also out of fear of what he might do, is really powerful. There's also a great bit where Hercules challenges Dionysus, got him in early, lots more of him to come to a drinking contest, which of course he loses. I mean, you don't take on the god of wine in a drinking contest, do you? Oh, Hercules, not the brightest button. And in that section, we meet a slightly unhinged but very passionate Ariadne who loves her husband even more when he screws around with Theseus's cousin. Good for her. We also meet the 50 women Hercules supposedly impregnated in one night on the orders of their father. And the way that's executed in the writing is very effective. It's something a bit different for this genre. 
from one of the most famous names in Greek mythology to one of the most forgettable. And it's a real shame that that's the case. But having the chance to come at that creatively is one of the reasons I set up this podcast in the first place. Now, I've been teasing since episode one about who my favourite goddess is. Now, I'm finally going to tell you. It is Hestia, first-born daughter of Kronos and Rhea, goddess of the hearth. Hestia, you exclaim, but why? And you're right to say so, because in the dramatic twists and turns of Greek mythology, Hestia contributes precisely nothing. Barely mentioned, no myths of her own. We only know about her in relation to her more powerful siblings. And maybe we laugh over that incident with the donkey, which is just one of the most stupid moments in all of mythology. We'll get to that later if you haven't heard it before. Basically, she has zero impact. And you're probably thinking at this point, why am I even bothering? Is she even a rebel heroine? Well, I argue that yes, she is indeed important. She is indeed a heroine, though as with many of the heroines we've talked about so far, by no means a traditional one, though at first glance she might seem like a stereotypical helpless virtuous maiden. And you know what? is indeed a rebel, probably one of the biggest in the Pantheon. And here's why. It's not about what Hestia does. It's what she doesn't do. During her time in the canon of Greek mythology, she doesn't kill anyone. She doesn't trick anyone. She doesn't fuck with anyone. She doesn't fuck anyone. She doesn't start a war. She doesn't mess with mortals. She accumulates no negative karma whatsoever. She leaves no trace. With the exception of maybe Hebe, Zeus and Hera's adorable daughter, who is official cupbearer to the gods until Ganymede comes along and Zeus is like, he's prettier than you, he's got your job now. And she's like, oh, no props, dad, I'll just sit in the corner and think about rainbows. Hestia is the most forgettable goddess. What does she actually do? She literally does her job. She stays out of all the drama and she does her job. She accepts the offerings of mortals to the gods via the medium of fire. And this is fascinating to me. Hestia is the original fire goddess of Greek mythology. She doesn't forge the armour of Achilles in it like Hephaestus. She doesn't rain down thunderbolts, yet still she is a fire goddess. Fire was just as integral to mortal survival as paying the gods their due, and Hestia takes a percentage of all sacrifices to every other god, and she takes it at the hearth, at the fire. Every home, grandiose or hovel, needed a fire. That's power, people. She's Goddess of the power centre, the home, security, safety, comfort, family, the realm of domestic womanhood. Never mind anything going on outside, home is the realm of a woman's goddess. Hestia is a goddess for women and at no point does she ever work against them. 
She reminds me of Penelope. Like Penelope, she's staying out of the drama and focusing on the core of the matter, the beating heart of what's important, keeping her family safe, making a secure home in the midst of chaos. What a family to handle. And Hestia seems to remain unscathed, unnoticed. And like Penelope, she is underestimated, beyond suspicion, unworthy of the bards singing of her timeless exploits. Like Penelope, she doesn't throw her ego around. She just gets on with the matter at hand with grace. This doesn't mean she doesn't have clout or desire or vulnerability or myth-worthy experiences. Natalie Haynes in Divine Might, speculates that Hestia gets largely forgotten because her function was so commonplace and everyday, because for most, the tending of the fire was a messy but necessary business, largely managed by slaves, by women, by the unseen, by the taken for granted. Why doesn't Hestia have any myths? Well, before we get to that, let's focus on the myths she is in. She is the firstborn of the Pantheon, which is in itself potent. And what happens to this shiny new goddess before she's even had a chance to strut her stuff? She gets eaten by her own dad. There's a traumatic origin story right there. It's quite telling that she's the last one who is pulled out of Kronos by her little brother Zeus because the firstborn then becomes the youngest. She was in that prison the longest. Zeus never even had to endure it. What kind of goddess might Hestia have been if she had never been stopped by a god before she'd even started and then been beholden to another one as soon as she'd been freed? She marries Hera to Zeus, a pretty integral moment for Greek mythology, and... Why Hestia? Because she represents, through her association with the home and heart and sacrifice, the core of a successful union. What kind of marriage might Hestia and Zeus have had? I can't imagine she would have punished any woman for her husband's crimes, but I should imagine he would have got pretty bored of her pretty quickly for the same reason. She also marries Aphrodite to Hephaestus. And I wonder as well, was she not the better choice for him, being also a deity associated with the power of fire? And she did get proposals from Poseidon and Apollo, which she turns down. Very clever of her. Dodged a bullet on two counts there, girl. And when she tells Zeus she wants to remain a virgin, this wish is honoured. But whereas you could imagine Artemis frolicking with her maidens in the woods away from prying eyes, where Athena follows Odysseus around like a little fangirl, Hestia doesn't have any sexuality and none is directed to her. There's a bit of sauciness when she sees Priapus, a minor fertility god, when she sees his excessively large penis and can't tear her eyes away and he gets the wrong idea, attempts to ravish her, but then, in one of the most ridiculous moments in all Greek myth, here's the donkey bit, he gets interrupted by the braying of a donkey and after that... 
The donkey is beloved of Hestia. Donkeys are the guardians of goddesses' virtue, apparently. Who knew? Zeus, god of thunder. Aphrodite, goddess of love. Hestia, goddess of donkeys. Classic. She has a bigger impact and a big resurgence in Roman culture as Vesta. You've probably heard of the Vestal Virgins. They were a massive part of Roman society. They kept the eternal flame of their goddess going day and night. Rich families would send their daughters to be Vestal Virgins. It was a place of honour. Vesta was prayed to for the good of the state. She was the centre of the city's home as well as continuing to be the domestic goddess with a place at every hearth. If a Vestal Virgin broke her vows and committed a sexual act, she was buried alive. Patriarchy really hijacked Hestia's energy for their own double standard ends, it seems. What else about Hestia? To be honest, that's pretty much it. So why is she my favourite goddess? Well, she does one interesting thing in the whole of Greek myth. She gives up her seat on Olympus. Yes, she gives up her power. You could argue she doesn't have much, but either way, firstborn, seat at the table forever, and she walks away. Where does she go? She goes to Earth to be among mortals, serve mortals, Which god does that? Which other god cares about mortals enough to walk amongst them, men and women, rich and poor? You know where I'm heading with this, right? I think Hestia basically finding Olympus wanting and saying, right, stuff this sausage fest, stuff this gaudy monument to toxic masculinity, I'm off, is really fucking brave of her. The rest of them meddle, then come back to drink ambrosia and brag to each other about all the fun they've had with their toys. She says, I'd rather be down there helping them out, actually. That's the most radical thing any of the goddesses do. Maybe on a par with Demeter's, I'm going to starve the world till you give me my daughter back moment. And here we come to a nice cyclic link with Rebel Heroine's first episode. Who does she give her place on Olympus to? She doesn't just give it out of nowhere. She concedes it to a new god. Any idea who this god might be? Yes, you know. And you know me so well by now. It's Dionysus. The benign, harmless goddess of the hearth gives up her seat on Olympus to the wild, rebellious sexy, swaggering, mysterious, drunken, orgiastic god of wine, theatre, madness and shagging. I would have loved to have been in the Olympus boardroom when that shit went down. There's a theory that this myth explains why sometimes the 12 gods of the Pantheon sometimes have Dionysus in the mix, sometimes Hestia, but not both. Why am I talking about this? Well, you might remember when I mentioned in the Persephone episode that I had a story I was working on concerning Dionysus and my favourite goddess. And here's the inspiration behind it. This question that kept coming back about Hestia. Why did she give up her place? 
Was she under pressure to walk away because she was seen as boring, useless, and they wanted to make room for their shiny, exciting new god who throws a great party? Or was it her conscious choice? Did she really want to help the mortals and felt she could do it better among them? Or was she just sick of all the fuckery on Olympus and saw in Dionysus the potential for much-needed change? And another question I kept asking myself about Dionysus. If these gods are real, if he was real, who else might he have been throughout history? Being just the sort of god to take on a human form and cause maximum rebellion. I always wanted to write about Dionysus around this question and it took me a while to find someone to pit him against because he's got so much going on and when I looked into him ousting Hestia I thought she's perfect because in comparison to him she couldn't be more different and then I thought to myself what if she left because she fell in love with him and then this story the only full-length proper story I've ever written and finished just spilled out fully formed and I wrote it during lockdown. I've been fascinated with the idea of the lonely goddess since I read Circe by Madeline Miller and when I read about what Hestia did or rather didn't do, I filled the gap and thought she must be the loneliest goddess in Olympus because it's all about playing games and she definitely doesn't want to play. Her power is to receive. Hestia quickly hijacked my Dionysus story. I realised I wanted to see Dionysus through her eyes. The eyes of a lonely, untouched goddess whose inner landscape, far from being boring, is plagued with fear and trauma from the actions of her brothers and their bloody history. I started to see what these two seemingly opposing gods had in common. Traumatic birth stories for one. There were so many potent contradictions as well. The fact that Hestia is the goddess of female domesticity and Dionysus is the god who will come along and stir mortal women up to abandon the hearth and get crazy and fuck on the mountainside. But yet, both of them serve women in a way none of the other gods do. I thought, what if Hestia realises something about herself she never knew before he came along? That maybe she wants to get wild too. I decided that she would, whether she liked it or not, find him immediately fascinating, terrifying, seductive and intriguing all at once and that he would realise he finds her equally fascinating. Because unlike everyone else on Olympus, who would have thrown themselves at him or lapped up his antics or tried to antagonise or shag him, all that dramatic jazz... Dionysus being Dionysus would have been more intrigued by the goddess hanging back in the shadows, expecting to be ignored, and he would have thought, what's she about? She's the one I want the most because she's ignoring me. And the story just sort of wrote itself from there. Going back to the speculation about who Dionysus might have morphed into over history, history is littered with rebel artists, poets, musicians who insist that the wildness and the drugs and the drink and the expanding of their consciousness is what yielded their genius. And you might have figured out where I'm going with this if you listen to episode one. I've gone full tilt with the what if Jim Morrison really was Dionysus. I couldn't resist. 
For those of you who might not have heard episode one, I got into Greek mythology via Jim Morrison and was particularly fascinated by his intrigue with Dionysus, how he thoroughly embodied the Dionysian spirit. I know I didn't know the guy, but I like to think I've done his persona, if not his real personality, justice, merging him with my version of Dionysus, impulsive, unpredictable, passionate, shamelessly sexual, sexy as fuck, committed to unleashing the natural rebellion in others. So I thought... Maybe you'd like to hear a few bits of my contribution to this genre I love so much. But it's something a bit different in that it's not technically a retelling of a particular myth. It's very much a speculative fantasy with Greek myth and 70s Paris as the backdrop. So here we go. Chapter 1 is where Hestia seeks out Dionysus for the first time in a couple of millennia since she left him on Olympus, and she is in Paris in the year 1973 in the month of July, the day before Jim Morrison died. Hoth, A Tale of Hestia and Dionysus Paris, July 1971 Only a city like Paris can lead you by instinct alone to the stranger you've been seeking since you forgot his smell. She'd made an effort to look as alluring as she dared without feeling a fool. She told herself it was to blend in with the general mood of casual sensuality. But it was in the hopes of eliciting a hint of surprise from someone who had truly seen it all. She could never shake off the sense of feeling dowdy no matter what she wore. But after years of careful cultivating, she'd finally learned to take pride in her ordinariness. It helped conceal the one thing she couldn't totally hide from these raucous libertines lounging over each other along the Seine at midnight. Not that she'd ever burned as brightly as the rest of her family, but nevertheless... It was necessary to douse it down, something she excelled in, and it never failed to fool people. It wouldn't fool him. He alone would know that for all her calm decorum, she was on fire with something all of her own, though she still felt like an imposter. It was so strange. After all this time, When it came to him, she still felt like the outsider. Chapter One The bar was dingy and smelt of sex, cheap wine and despair. Though the neons were flickering with promise, though the barman was handsome and effortlessly charming, she could tell what he was thinking. What's a mousy housewife like you doing in a shithole like this? She'd grown used to that look, but tonight it infuriated her. There was blues music playing as a prostitute wept loudly on an old man's shoulder. Of course, she smiled to herself, letting the rage subside. He loved the blues 
as he loved the dark anonymity of a seedy dive. He was definitely here. What do you desire, mademoiselle? the barman asked, trying to sound as if he could procure whatever she wished, knowing it would only be a shoddy imitation. Desire. A worn-out word for this city, for this world. None of them really understood what it could do. The devastation, the delirium. She had only stood on the sidelines and witnessed, but it haunted her all the same. They were lucky they didn't know the extent of the fallout once it was sated. And she was still, somehow, jealous. She smiled pleasantly, something else she'd perfected, and turned her head as her heart started to pound. Are you looking for someone? he replied, with a hint of genuine surprise at the idea of her being familiar with his clientele. She didn't really hear him. She was frozen as she focused on an arm reaching out to lift a wine glass with practised ease. The hint of a profile, a little bloated, but still unmistakably him. She turned back to reply not to be polite. She had come to loathe politeness, but more to give herself a brief respite from the ache that would consume her the closer she got to her quarry. I found him. Finally. She dared to breathe out and pretend indifference a little longer. Messy. She couldn't stop herself pulling at the hair she'd never figured out how to wear, adjusting the dress she'd changed countless times, painting the part of her that had come to care about such frivolities since she'd decided to seek him out. She realised long ago she could never compete with... How many? How would he even remember? That was somehow comforting... Relax, she begged herself. If you can't be yourself now, what was the point in any of this? She'd been in the crowd with many of them. Several times she had writhed with the masses, sweated with his worshippers, but never revealed herself, never completely surrendered. He would have sensed one of his own kind was close, but he'd never sought her out. Maybe he didn't want to see any of them again, or maybe he'd always found her tiresome company. Here it was again, the constant questioning of what was going on inside his head. What good did it ever do anyone to try and guess such things, no matter how long they lived? It had been exciting in that crowd, just on the edge of chaos, but still somehow disappointing compared to the old days. But in those ancient days, the great swarming animal madness, there had been blood and anguish after the drums died. If they could have seen the destruction he could wreak, they would never have ventured so close to the flames. But it was all over now. She heard a world-weary sigh as the glass was placed softly back on the table, and she knew somehow there would be no more rebellions from him. Good, she told herself, as she came within his sight. 
Maybe now he's ready for me. She braced herself for the enticing unknown and waited. She'd always been waiting for him, one way or another, even before any of them knew he existed. You would never have guessed from their endless, enthusiastic meddling that they were bored with their victory already. Eager to be challenged, tested, even duped, and he delivered. She'd never forget it. Even now as she stood before him, half elated, half petrified, sensing a broken spirit under that constant magnetic pull, she could still remember it all with unnerving clarity. She'd stepped tentatively into the great hall not long after he'd first arrived, her footsteps almost silent, another trademark. She'd come to sate her curiosity about this revelry she had not been invited to. They'd stopped bothering to tempt her. She hadn't cared. Not until him. The noise. The mess. The state of them all. Dancing. Howling with laughter. Fucking. Throwing up on all their finery. And him. In the middle of it all. Lounging over the cushions, naked, shameless, slow and sensual, and still somehow innocent, as the world she knew broke itself around him. His complete lack of surprise that she was there, as he filled a glass of dark red liquid she'd never seen before, and sauntered over to her, devouring her with his deep eyes as if he wanted... She'd faltered with embarrassment, and he'd seen and smiled. He wanted her surrender. I had nothing to do with it. Leave me be, she'd wanted to scream in her defence, knowing he must hate her, hate all of them. He'd held out the glass and offered her something she'd never regretted refusing until it was far too late. What might life have been like if she'd taken him up on his offer? Now, she would finally know. She speaks just above a whisper, knowing he'll hear every word over the music. I knew if I walked the back alleys of all this decadent beauty, I'd find you eventually. He looks up slowly an exquisitely impish smile already forming on his face. She remembers every nuance of that smile. Drink, he demanded softly, while her family had staggered around them oblivious. What is it? He'd laughed, in what she'd taken for mockery, but came to realise later was something altogether more subtle the reckless conspiratorial permission to give in. I made it. It's mine, and now it's yours, everyone's. Drink. His voice was so soft, tinged with power, silent threat, and delicious uncertainty. He now kicks out the chair opposite him with his snakeskin boot, slowly, effortlessly, and even something as mundane as this makes her whole body ache with festering longing. About time you had a drink with me. 
though this stuff is shitty compared to what I could pull off in my glory days. Might be too bitter for your refined tastes, mademoiselle. She laughs, unexpectedly, completely, so every tense muscle relaxes under his lazy scrutiny. To this day, he's always been the only one who could get this from her. He smiles again as he remembers his ability to cast spells by merely being himself. She hadn't let herself laugh back then, and where had her restraint got her? She wanted to ask him finally if any of it had ever made him happy. If they were as capable of happiness as these playthings they'd come to embrace as their people. What have you done? she demanded that night, surprising herself at her tone, trying to recall the last time she dared to raise her voice as she pushed the glass away violently. Something that would have surprised the onlookers had they not been so preoccupied with themselves. She'd been careful not to touch him. You never touched him unless he invited it. That was something she'd known they had in common right from the start. For all his bravado, he always behaved respectfully, despite his obvious temptation. What have you done to them? He looked genuinely confused at her uncharacteristic anger, like a spoiled boy devastated by his first reprimand. Is that what he wanted from her? Too bad. She was tired of her role. It was wasted on them. All they really wanted was the illusion of rules so they could break them. They'd never seen their own transparency. Not like he had, straight away. She wouldn't play this game. She'd never thought it possible, as she watched him years later, playing this ever-increasingly dangerous game with hundreds, thousands, dare me, dare me to break the world apart. But she would risk everything to play now. Now when it was safe. Now when he was defeated by his own desire for oblivion. He must know. He must resent her cowardice. She tried not to care. Always with him, one way or another, she was trying not to care. And he knew it was impossible for her. He would make a fool of her, no matter what transpired. That's what had stopped her then. It wouldn't stop her now. If you think they will accept you for proving them powerless, you're wrong, she'd said as a parting shot when she'd made her escape from his unrelenting gaze that night on Olympus. Now she was eager to have his eyes on her, and as if sensing a need she'd done her best to beat out of herself, he moved forward into the distorted light and she gasped as she saw what no one else in this shithole could see. Even though he'd done his best to destroy it with drink and excess, even though he was paunchy, too old to be so young, he couldn't destroy his blazing divinity. She saw it still. Even though millennia had passed, he was still the most beautiful and terrifying thing she had ever seen. Dionysus, what have you done? What have you done to yourself? As if his true name is poison to him, 
He sits back as his body seems to shiver, so at odds with his voice, still so soft and alluring and deadly. I missed you, Hestia. Sit down. Drink. So there we go, the first chapter from my novel Hearth, A Tale of Hestia and Dionysus. That is its first outing out into the world. I've given it to some writer friends of mine for editing. I'm looking into potential publishers. If you are one such and you're interested, do let me know what you think. Another Jim Morrison-inspired spoken word creation of mine that you might like is my first solo show, Brazen, about my coming of age through discovering Jim Morrison and the Doors. I'll put a link to the show in the show notes. I'm also going to put in a link to this really cool short film that I watched on YouTube. It's like a claymation animation and features Narcissus, Medusa and Icarus as a series of encounters for the protagonist to be complete and find love. It was, yeah, really interesting, very different and, yeah, a bit of a left-field Greek mythology reference that I think you might enjoy. So... Thank you so much for listening. Feel free to like, subscribe to my YouTube channel. You can find me under Rebel Heroines Podcast. If you'd like to get in touch, send me any pre-recorded poetry or drama on theme, you can email me at lornaemehan at gmail.com. Please do share the podcast with anyone who might be interested. And I will be back before the end of the year with a bonus episode with the author of Winter Harvest, a Demeter origin story. Have a great Christmas. See you soon.